The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 1. Narrated by America's Mayor, Rudy Giuliani. I knew what I wanted to do when I was eight years old. How did I know? Well, you know the story. I hated school. It was prison. I just hated it. Here I'm locked in this place. I'm having to learn about whatever you learn about in first grade, you know, how to pace things and stuff. The last place I wanted to be. So every morning getting ready to go to this prison, this school, my mother had the radio on and she's listening to the guy, a local jock, and this guy sounds like he's having fun doing whatever he's doing. He's playing records, he's doing commentary, the weather forecast. It sounds like he's having fun. I said, that's how I want my day to be. I don't want to begin my day in drudgery and something I don't want to do, but I had no choice. You have to go to school. If ever a man was born for radio, it was Rush Hudson Limbaugh III. He entered this world in January of 1951, right in the heartland of America, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. He was born into a family of lawyers who enjoyed success at nearly every level. And he almost seemed destined to be the same. His paternal grandfather, Rush Hudson Limbaugh I, served as a United States ambassador. His father, Rush Hudson Limbaugh II, was a lawyer, as was his uncle, and even his younger brother David, who has also since gone on to becoming a best-selling author. But no, Rush had different plans. As you can imagine, a deviation from the family business wasn't received all too well. Even Rush would have said later, there's no way my dad could have anticipated that Rush would break all odds and be phenomenally successful not going the conventional route. So in the end, it just worked out for the best. Though Rush's family initially frowned upon his aspirations for a career in radio, they didn't completely ignore his passion for broadcasting. At the age of nine, Rush would broadcast from his own bedroom using a toy radio given to him by his parents that could only transmit throughout his house. There was a device called a Rimco Caravel, and it was the most amazing thing. My parents got it for me for Christmas one year, and my mother actually dutifully put a radio on her lap, and I would go upstairs where the bedroom was, and I would have my photo, and it, you, you had to have an external microphone to put near the speaker of the phonograph that you were playing records on. You had to move the microphone to your mouth when you were doing DJ stuff, and then you'd hold the microphone near the speaker for the phonograph to play the record. And my mother would dutifully sit down there and listen to this. And the quality was just, was, was horrible, but it allowed me to get started on, uh, on, on living out my, my dreams. As time passed, Rush came to believe that his family had a change of heart about his pursuit of broadcasting. Even though the family didn't understand it, the fact that I hadn't quit it was enough for them to encourage me to stay in it, and I did. And uh, all that happened happened, and it's it's been so rewarding. It has been so um, so meaningful to me, and there have been so many people that have made it possible, among them all of you. Thankfully for the rest of us, my friend Rush Hudson Limbaugh III spent the next seven decades in his relentless pursuit of broadcast excellence, and he set the standard that will be very, very hard to meet. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 2, narrated by Mark Stein. 
Rush Hudson Limbaugh III landed his first job when he was just 13, shining shoes at a Cape Girardeau barbershop. And I'll bet he was a pretty good shoeshine boy. But what he really wanted to be was that guy on the radio. For Rush, being a disc jockey represented more fun than a junior human being should be allowed to have. My wildest dreams when I was a young kid pretending to be a DJ on the radio when I was eight years old. He fell in love with a toy radio transmitter that allowed him to broadcast inside the house to members of his family. Any kid who's wanted to be on the radio will know the thrill of making your own cassette tapes of you doing voiceovers over Frankie Avalon and the Maguire sisters or whoever's singles it was back then. But as one of those gazillions of would-be boss jocks, I certainly envy Rush that transmitter gizmo. Some kids have to make do with bringing an old baby monitor down from the attic. It was the most amazing thing. It's plastic. It was about three feet long and two feet high. And it transmitted over AM within the confines of a, I don't know, a small house. The quality was horrible, but it worked. At 16, Rush, with a little help from his dad, advanced from the toy transmitter to the real thing. He got an internship at KGMO 1550 AM. And then the intern realized his childhood dream and got on the air, spinning platters under the name Rusty Sharp. That's a fabulous radio moniker, but only half true in this case. Rush was always sharp and never rusty. Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Steve, this is my hometown. How are you, sir? Good. Greetings from the City of Roses. Thank First you, time sir. Caller. Thank you, sir, very much. I was six years behind you in school, but I used to listen to you on KGMO. Is that right? <laughs> I was the one that called every day and say, man, play in a God of DeVita, will you? <laughs> Once he was on the radio, he never looked back, working mornings and afternoons at KGMO, and then it happened. Rusty Sharp got fired and kicked off the air. The first of many firings for Rush over the years, all of which setbacks he overcame and learned from on his way up to the one gig, the third of a century engagement, that ultimately only God could terminate him from. He wasn't your typical 1960s teenager. He didn't need and never sought the approval of the high school in-crowd. He preferred to socialize with older, more mature friends, although he won the admiration of his school's upperclassmen with his quick wit and sharp mind and fearlessness in debate. He wasn't afraid to stand out, to be contrarian. He refused, for example ever to wear blue jeans. Come on, let's face it. It's, it's like a Volvo or a Saab. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a Prius. It's, it's a liberal status symbol. Jeans are liberal status symbols. Yeah, at least they were. I know everybody wears them now. It's another battle we've lost. Absolutely. They used to be a status symbol or a Compromised symbol. Compromised our sartorial splendor and we run around <laughs> looking like a bunch of hippies. And I'm not going to do it. He had yet to finish high school, but already there was a Rush Limbaugh style and a Rush Limbaugh brand. After graduating from Cape Girardeau Central in 1969, Rush was expected by his father to go to college. So he enrolled at nearby Southeast Missouri State University. But after only two semesters, Rush dropped out for good. Radio was calling. And Rush chose to pursue his dream, confident that it was about to become reality. Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 3 
narrated by Sean Hannity. After enduring a painful year of college at Southeastern Missouri University, young Rush Limbaugh, he bid farewell to college life and then immersed himself into his next big radio job. After loading up his 1969 Pontiac Le Mans, Rush headed east with dreams of making it big in the Iron City. And DJ Rusty Sharp from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, was soon reborn as Bachelor Jeff Christie, first hosting an afternoon drive shift and later holding down the morning show on Wixie 1360, known as one of Pittsburgh's premier top 40 radio stations. Now, WIXC, the Keysport, continues with much more Wixie 1360 Solid Rock and Gold. It's 7.03 in the morning on Wixie Solid Rock and Gold, the Bachelor Jeff Radio Network from 1360. Want to have a big hand for Mr. and Mrs. Idol Paluski, a couple of new members to the Christie Radio Network this morning, celebrating their 25th refrigerator favorite today. Jeff Christie lasted barely 18 months on WIXZ before he was fired. That was in the fall of 1972 over what were described as, quote, differences over format. His departure from Wixie 1360 quickly led to a bigger opportunity for Rush, a.k.a. Jeff Christie, and in early 1973, Crosstown Top 40 competitor KQV Radio, well, they hired him to be their new nighttime DJ that afforded Rush an even bigger platform and another opportunity to further develop his on-air persona. KQV, Pittsburgh. Jeff Christie was beginning to hone future on-air skills that would eventually become the trademarks of Rush Limbaugh's excellence in broadcasting. Now, Rush would soon learn success in radio is kind of fickle, especially as station ownership changes hands. In a dramatic turn of events, the lame duck KQV management, well, they pushed the new program director to fire Rush, and 90 days later, Rush Limbaugh, Jeff Christie, was out of work. When I got fired, I thought I was finished. I'd given it my best shot. DJ didn't work out. I didn't want to do anything else. This has been my one passion. And in a stinging rebuke that Rush would remember for decades, the station's general manager told the 20-something Rush Limbaugh that he would, quote, never make it in radio as an air talent and that he should strongly consider the sales end of the radio business. I had an interview with a sales manager at a station and the guy was a genuine lunatic. He's, I'm just me, I'm interviewing for the job and he's yelling and screaming at me about what his demands will be and what they are. And I said, geez, I gotta face this every day. So after three years of trying to make a go of it in Pittsburgh, while well, Rush was out of another radio gig, feeling defeated and dejected, he returned to the security and comfort of his home in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Rush was down, but as we all know, far from out. His determination for success far outweighed the idea of failure. The long version here of, t- of telling you that this has been, that's why I'm so fortunate. I've, I was able to end up doing what I think I was born to do. I've never had passion for anything else. I mean, career-wise, like I've got for this. Unforgettable. That's the impression that you, the Rush Limbaugh audience, made with your support for Rush's last charitable effort, while Rush was still with us. Through the Stand Up for Betsy Ross campaign, your generosity resulted in a $5 million donation to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. 
Rush said it best. We chose Tunnel to Towers to be the beneficiary of the campaign because we love the work they do and the story about how they started. When a family experiences significant loss, the mother or father passes while serving our country. Tunnel to Towers steps in, frees that family of a major worry during their time of crisis. Tunnel to Towers pays off mortgages in full for these families and provides them with the comfort of a home when their world has literally been turned upside down. The foundation does the same for first responders and also builds smart homes for our most catastrophically injured veterans and first responders. More heroes need your help. Do good by donating $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's the letter T, the number two, the letter T, Org. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 4, narrated by Mark Levin. Despite being fired from his first three jobs in radio, Jeff Christie, a.k.a. Rush Limbaugh, didn't stay down for long. He worked aggressively to return to the airwaves and by 1975 landed the afternoon show at Top 40 KUDL in Kansas City. Award-winning Jeff Christie Rock and Roll Radio Show. So Rush's time at KUDL was short-lived, lasting barely two years before he was let go. For the first time in his life, Rush had become disenchanted with radio. After serious thought, he chose to temporarily walk away from his dreams of a successful radio career. In 1979, Rush set a new career course, Major League Baseball. I remember my father, when I when I quit radio, was the happiest he ever was. I quit radio at age 28 because I figured I'd burned out. I was playing records. The son, what does that mean? I mean, where's that going to take you? When I got that job at the Kansas City Royals making $13,000, he was happier than he had ever been. Rush's four years with the Royals were successful. It led to a lifelong friendship with Hall of Famer George Brett. After baseball, Rush returned to radio in 1983 as the afternoon news and sports anchor at KMBZ. Kansas City Radio, KMBZ. The first time in his career, he used his given name on the airwaves, Rush Limbaugh. But he even boasted to his general manager, quote, It's only a matter of time before you're going to fire me. Rush's prediction became his reality. And after less than a year at KMBZ, he was out. By 1984... Rush replaced Morton Downey Jr. in middays on KFBK in Sacramento. KFBK was a perfect fit for Rush, and he was soon dominating the market in his time slot. I finally got to do a radio show the way I wanted to do it, the things that I cared about, the things I thought people would listen to, and it was basically just sharing my passions. I love sharing my passions. I come up with things that are passionate, and I want everybody to know about it. I want everybody to experience it. I want everybody to agree. And it finally all came together for me in Sacramento, California. After three years of rating success in Sacramento, Rush left KFBK to become part of Ed McLaughlin's newly formed EFM Media Network. Still, his departure from KFBK was bittersweet. I'm just a guy on the radio. When I started this 30 years ago, I never envisioned any of this happening. What I wanted to become was the best radio guy in the country. And I had this great opportunity. I could be me, I could be honest, I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about, and there was nobody that could tell me I couldn't. And I have, to, folks, I have to tell you, it is the, the greatest blessing that I've ever had 
is to have the opportunity I do each and every day. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 5, narrated by Megan Kelly. In 1988, a retired radio executive named Edward F. McLaughlin decided to use his golden parachute from ABC Radio Networks to form his own brand new talk radio network, aptly titled EFM Media. After meticulous planning for a successful launch, McLaughlin knew he needed more than just a talented host, but a force behind the mic and cast a wide net in his search. A hot tip led him out west, where a 38-year-old talk radio host was burning up the airwaves of Sacramento, California. There are any number of people Ed McLaughlin could have chosen, but I fortunately met some people along the way after moving to Sacramento that Ed McLaughlin knew and trusted implicitly. And when he was looking, unbeknownst to me, I don't know any of this is going on, my name is in a list of people he should look into. He could have picked anybody. This was his guide. And McLaughlin made him an offer leader described as impossible to turn down. Rush Limbaugh traded the capital of California for the bright lights of the Big Apple. He relocated to New York City and established, first, a local 10 a.m. to noon show on WABC Radio. Rush Limbaugh, New York, 20 minutes after 10. Back to the phones we go. Vinny, hello. Glad you're with us. All right, right. That one of them California beach names or what? No, no, I'm originally <laughs> beach names. In New York, Limbaugh's early days were an unqualified success, even with the challenge of a meddling program director who unsuccessfully tried to get Rush to change what would become his signature on-air style. Rush, being Rush, dug in and ultimately prevailed after his first shows on WABC Radio went off without a hitch. Rush's mentor and new boss, Ed McLaughlin, proudly recalled after hearing his first show the quote, I knew he could handle it. Ed McLaughlin never wavered a single time. He never asked me to tone it down, to change things, to do whatever to accommodate this complaint or that complaint. Safe to say, Rush Limbaugh more than just handled it. He crushed it. You know, people credit me with this, but I couldn't have done any of this if it hadn't been for Ed McLaughlin. Ed McLaughlin saved AM radio by investing in it. The fast lane to nationwide syndication for the Rush Limbaugh show was just around the corner. It really hit me how damn lucky I am and have been. I try to never, ever forget it. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 6, narrated by Glenn Beck. The landscape of national syndication of daytime talk radio shows in 1988 was lonely compared to the daytime syndication space of today. The idea at the time was bold and full of risk. But Ed McLaughlin knew intimately the power of spoken word radio and he knew the time to strike was then. You have a giant in the radio business, Ed McLaughlin, who retires from ABC, is given two hours of satellite time to fill as he wishes. He could have chosen to do anything with these two hours. He could have played music. He could have done, you know, polka. He could have done Chinese opera. But he believed in the power of spoken word radio. He believed it could win. So, on August 1st of 1988, nationwide syndication of the Rush Limbaugh program began. The initial offering was two hours a day, and 56 brave stations stood with Rush as true believers and loyal affiliates on day one. It took off. It took off faster and bigger than anybody had expected. 
it, it took off and exploded the way you dream about. The flagship station of the Rush Limbaugh program was 77 WABC in New York. In the beginning, Rush also hosted a local show from 10 till noon, and then his national radio program from noon to 2 p.m. Eastern, every day on the inaugural affiliates scattered all across America. The reason I had to do that was that we started with 56 stations. That's not enough stations for national advertisers to care. And I faced for a year and a half derision and criticism and mockery and all that for what I was trying to do. And the way we did it, the reason I had to do that New York show is because that's where we were given three minutes an hour to sell national advertising. So we were able to tell advertisers their commercials would be heard in New York City. Because if you couldn't do that back then, you couldn't have a nationally syndicated program. In a matter of months, the program expanded to three hours of daily national syndication, airing noon to three. And the program's rapid growth demanded more attention and focus from Rush, ultimately leading to the end of his local midday program on WABC. Ed McLaughlin's brilliant bet on daytime syndication paid off, exceeding even the wildest expectations of his now superstar host, Rush Limbaugh. The show's growth was unstoppable, reaching an unprecedented 500 national affiliates in only three years. And that's a number that only continued to grow in the 30 that followed. Hey, James Golden here. You might remember I told you a few weeks ago that my pillow had sent me their entire collection. Well, you know what? It's amazing. They are so luxurious. And it's time that you experience some of that luxury, too. My pillow makes more than pillows. I love the pillow. I sleep on it every night. But you know what else they have? They have sheets that are simply incredible. They're smooth. They're soft. They're comfortable. I look forward to getting to bed every night under these sheets. Get yourself a set of these. They're called Giza sheets. They come with a 60-day comfort guarantee. You get pillows. You get sheets. Oh, did I mention the slippers? They're incredible slippers. There is a level of comfort for MyPillow products that you simply have to experience. Log on to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener specials, use the promo code ICON, that's I-C-O-N. You'll find lots of incredible offers there right now. That's MyPillow.com, promo code ICON. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 7, narrated by Neil Bortz. When you think about what it means to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, you might think first of legendary names like Ruth, Aaron, maybe Montana, Marino. Here's a few more for you. Freed, Harvey, Limbaugh. That's right, members of the Radio Hall of Fame, and Rush Limbaugh is obviously right there, a member. But unlike the others who typically have to wait until the end of their careers, it was clear early on that the Hall needed to make room for Rush after only five years of syndication and overwhelming record-breaking success, he became part of a prestigious class of inductees in 1993. For a guy from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, fired from his first seven radio jobs before finding any sort of success behind a microphone, the entire experience was nothing short of humbling. So many standards of excellence have been set by previous inductees, including tonight's 
that all I can hope to do is try to approximate them as I go through my career. And if I am one day judged to have done that, then I will consider it to have been worth it and a success. I say what I say to the American people, and any chance I have a chance to speak to them, I do. And I am so grateful and so honored. Regardless what I mean to them, I am certain that I will never mean as much to them as they mean to me. After patiently waiting through a critical introductory speech from Sally Jesse Raphael based on their political differences, Rush confidently strolled up to the podium and delivered an acceptance speech full of class, grace, and gratitude. In the speech, he offered his thanks to the American people, family, and colleagues, and ironically enough, his competition and those who disagreed with him. When I came to New York, there was one man I said, here's the standard, that's what I'm up against, here's who I consider my competition to be. If Larry King had not shown that syndicated talk programming would work, I wouldn't have had the chance. I thank Larry King as well. I thank all of you. Thank you so much for allowing me to run long. Thank you. No matter if you're an athlete, a musician, or a broadcaster, being inducted into the Hall of Fame is usually the crowning achievement of a long career finished as you head off into the sunset. But for Rush Limbaugh, it was only the beginning, with still more than 25 years of excellence in broadcasting to come. Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 8, narrated by Mary Madeline. You wouldn't know it at the time, but in the 1992 election, a battle for the ages was born. And not between incumbent President George H.W. Bush and his challenger, a young, smooth-talking Democratic governor from Arkansas. That election was over. Now, at this point, a political chess match for the ages began between that very governor, now president-elect Clinton, and the hero of this story, talk radio icon Rush Limbaugh. It is, it's fundamental to remember that here are the Clintons admitting their paranoia because they didn't know how to deal with a non-supportive media. And all it was was just me on the radio and some other local talk show guys in the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and they're acting like it is the biggest threat to their existence ever. In the process, Rush became the number one voice of conservatism, a mantle literally passed on by none other than President Ronald Reagan himself in a treasured written letter. Rush's political savvy combined with an uncanny reality-based ability to make the complex understandable helped the party of Reagan get back on track. In fact, with Rush at the helm, the GOP won long-shot landslide victories across the fruited plain, up and down the ballot, plus the House majority for the first time in over a half a century, now known as the Republican Revolution. In 1994, it was the peak. It was huge. I'll tell you what shocked me, and it really did. Clinton was flying into St. Louis in 1994 on Air Force One. He's doing an interview before he arrives with the morning crew at Camo X, our affiliate in St. Louis. He starts complaining about me. Yeah, you got Rush Limbaugh coming up here. When you guys finish, you can come up at noon. You have three hours. Three hours. Say whatever he wants, and nobody's going to say anything otherwise. There's no truth detector. Here's the president of the United States with the biggest bully pulpit in the world complaining about some guy on the radio for three hours. It's no coincidence that the Rush Limbaugh program, as you note, actually began during the Reagan administration. And though the Clinton years were filled to the brim with easy fodder for Rush to feast on, he spent the years after battling a misperception that the show's success was primarily built on the daily melodrama dished up by the Clintons. In reality, the show's popularity experience 
exploded long before the presidency was even a twinkle in Bill Clinton's eye. I can't tell you the number of people who believe that this program arose to its current heights because Bill Clinton won the election. This program got off the ground and became the most listened to radio talk show in three years before Bill Clinton ever thought about running for office. In the end, Rush reminded his listeners that his program never depended on the party that was in power. I've often had a phrase, my success doesn't depend on who wins elections. I can't control who's going to win elections anyway, regardless who's in the White House or not. And by the way, just because your team wins doesn't mean they don't screw up. The whole objective here is to have a good show. Rush Limbaugh hosted far more than a good show. In fact, for decades after the Clinton administration had come and gone, he proudly carried the conservative torch forward, both on the air and off the air. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 9, narrated by George Norrie. The 90s drew new lines in the political battlefield, ultimately leading to a hotly contested 2000 presidential election. But by the time George W. Bush was inaugurated and the dust began to settle, the era of compassionate conservatism seemed poised for smooth sailing. The Clinton presidency was in the rearview mirror. The House had a Republican majority, and because conservatives were riding high, Russia's critics predicted without anyone to complain about, his show would soon be on the decline. And then on a clear Tuesday morning, everything changed. Debris is just falling off the building. I mean, it's under. I was looking at the trade towers exactly when it happened. Yeah, we need to unite. We need to understand. We're all in it together. September 11, 2001, profoundly impacted America, the Bush presidency, and Rush Limbaugh. All different sets of emotions start taking over. Then... In the course of the next few weeks, learned that I knew people who lost people, family members and friends at the World Trade Center. They are still not the same. The tone of politics changed on a dime, and Russia's audience grew dramatically as Americans turned to a familiar, soothing voice to calm the chaos, pick up the pieces, and move America forward. The Bush White House also recognized the breach of his program as both President Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney became regular contributors. Welcome back to the program, the Vice President, Dick Cheney. Mr. Vice President, thank you. As always, it's, it's an honor and a delight to have you here with us. Well, Rush, it's uh, great to talk to you again. After two successful terms and despite expertly guiding America through an unprecedented crisis early in his administration, President Bush left Washington with waning popularity and amidst harsh criticism. In the years that followed, Rush tried to set the record straight. Bush was a solid leader dealing with 9-11. I mean, how in the world do you go from that perception to go to being 30% approval, hated and reviled? You do that by letting the media destroy you and not fighting back and not getting political because you don't want to sully the office or whatever. To the end, Rush Limbaugh had profound respect for his friend, President George W. Bush, and his stewardship of the American presidency. Bush has been rehabilitated in the eyes of the drive-by media. Bush is gracious now. What's missing in this transformation, of course, uh, Bush the evil to Bush the gracious, is the acknowledgement that he has always comported himself this way. Despite the relentless attacks these past eight years, George W. Bush has been a class act. He considered Bush a strong leader who was unfairly defined by his opponents. And for his part, George W. Bush had a mutual respect for Rush. In a statement after his death, 
Bush praised Russia's belief in God and country as an indomitable spirit with a big heart. Like his father, 41, before him, perhaps the same could be said about number 43. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 10, narrated by Scott Baio. On November 4th, 2008, America made history by electing its first black president. And known for his signature cutting-edge analysis and insight, Rush Limbaugh was quick to explain how Barack Obama was able to convince so many Americans to vote for him. In fact, Rush was very detailed as to why Obama's election victory was so decisive. The main reason Obama was elected was a bunch of people in this country very distressed and fed up with the ongoing allegation that they and the rest of the country were a bunch of racists and bigots. And they believed that if they participated in electing the first African-American president, that they could do away with that charge. They could do away with that notion, that idea. I firmly believe that the vast majority outside of the Democrat, but the vast majority of white votes for Obama were made with that hope. After eight years of conservative leadership under President George W. Bush, Rush was eager, willing, and ready to resume his role as chief conservative critic in opposition to the Obama regime, as he frequently labeled it. And it fits! What the hell else is it but not a regime? It didn't take long for Rush to start making waves with only four little words just before inauguration day i hope he fails i wanted obama to fail so that my country would not i wanted obama's liberal agenda his socialist community organizer agenda to fail i did not and never have and never will want america to fail never no way i wanted America to be saved. Rush soon found plenty more to criticize in what became the signatures of the Obama administration. From Obamacare to the closing of Gitmo, the Iran nuclear deal to Obama's border tactics and much, much more. For Rush Limbaugh, the Obama years were chock full of policies and bad politics to dissect for tens of millions of listeners daily. And throughout Obama's two terms in office, Rush took great pride in telling his listeners that he had no doubt the president was one of them. As he often explained on air, not only was Obama paying attention to him, he was fixated on him. The Republicans are only concerned about what's on Fox News or what Rush Limbaugh is saying, and Democrats are looking at the New York Times or Huffington Post. So Obama comes into office telling Republicans that they can't listen to Rush Limbaugh anymore and get things done. That's just not how it happens in Washington. And he's leaving office having failed to remove one of his main impediments from his equation, and that would be me. So after eight years, Obama, he comes into office with me living rent-free in his head, and I'm still there. It can be said today that during the Obama administration, Rush Limbaugh was at his best, staunchly defending conservative principles and standing up for America and its exceptionalism. But in the end, whether at his best or even on a bad day, few could touch Rush Limbaugh. The Obama chapter was but just eight years of more than 30 of unprecedented broadcast excellence. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 11, narrated by Nick Searcy. After the election of Barack Obama in 2008, Rush Limbaugh was immediately concerned for the direction America was headed, as he intuitively sensed the growing loss of freedoms and liberty to come over the next eight years. And as the end of the Obama regime neared, Rush's listeners trusted him more than ever as conservatism's most vocal champion and opinion maker. 
as a well-known businessman, a non-political outsider, started gaining steam in a long-shot bid for the Republican presidential nomination, Rush made clear where his priorities stood. Whatever you think I'm advocating, it's not because I care what happens to the Republican Party. I care about what happens to America. And I know that any more of what we've had the last eight years, it's going to be America, but it's not going to be the America you and I know. As then-candidate Donald J. Trump took off on a meteoric rise, the mainstream media and political pundits were dumbfounded by his success and his refusal to play by the usual tired set of rules. But Rush knew early on that Trump was different and why he connected with the American people. He's real. He isn't phony. He's not politically correct and he's fearless. He's not afraid to tell people what he actually thinks about other people or things. Trump is showing that the things the Republican Party is afraid of are baseless. They don't need to be afraid. With his signature insight, Limbaugh told his listeners why the experts were failing to understand the man who was promising to make America great again. Despite the scores of critics and doubters, Trump never gave up, and he campaigned relentlessly right until the early morning hours of Election Day, November 8, 2016. So it's now officially Tuesday... November 8th. Did you ever think you'd be hearing a major speech like at around close to one o'clock in the morning? Are we crazy? And as America came alive the next morning, it discovered Trump had shocked the world with a decisive win over Hillary Clinton. For his part, Rush became one of President Trump's most vocal advocates throughout his presidency and the 2020 election. He saw Trump as a uniter who would be good for America in the long run. He is out trying to get as many people in this country as he can to join his movement. He's not trying to lose. He's not trying to clean things up and make the party something that it isn't. He's trying to rename it, reshape it, so that it is a party of victory. And what's the slogan? Make America great again. America first. Everything he's talking about is real. The outcome of the last presidential election of Russia's lifetime didn't produce the results for which he had hoped. And if the world ever needed his insight and commentary, it does today, more than ever. But if you listen close, even though the golden EIB microphone sits empty, through the speakers of radio stations across the country, you can still hear the man we knew and loved for more than 30 years. The voices offering their opinion on the radio now may be different, but the footsteps in which they follow, undoubtedly, belong to Rush Limbaugh. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 12. Narrated by Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. I have to tell you something today that I wish I didn't have to tell you. That's how Rush began to break the news to you, to us, on February 3rd, 2020, that he had been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. And for the first time in more than 30 years, we had to confront the reality that he wouldn't be there in the middle of our day forever. Most people might have walked away from their professional life for good at that point, especially someone of his means, but not Rush Limbaugh. Determined as ever, he dug in for the long haul, no matter how painful or difficult it would get. I thought about trying to do this without anybody knowing, because I don't like making things about me. But there are going to be days that I'm not going to be able to be here. And you know me, I'm the mayor of Realville. This has happened, and my intention is to come here every day I can. But what else would you expect? 
This is a man whose passion for his craft was unparalleled. A man who taught us that no matter how many times you get knocked down, or in his case, even fired seven times, you keep getting up and pushing forward until you reach greatness. Be humble, grateful, and share your success with others, helping others, even if you don't expect or want credit publicly for it. The legacy of Rush Limbaugh on its surface might be that he was a groundbreaking broadcaster who saved AM radio, or a savvy intellectual who knew politics inside and out. Both things true, he surely was. But his bigger legacy will live on even brighter behind the scenes with the people who knew him best and loved him most. Checking with a mother on his staff before asking her to travel to make sure her daughter didn't have any events at school she wouldn't want to miss. Quietly helping an employee pay off some debt or replace a broken down vehicle. Sending ten, twenty, or $50,000 to someone he'd never met whose story he found and touched his heart. You know, I have a philosophy. There's good that happens in everything. It may not reveal itself immediately. And even in the most dire circumstances. If you just wait, if you just remain open to things, the good in it will reveal itself. And that has happened to me as well. These are the lesser known measures of the man behind the golden EIB microphone. On the air, it was talent on loan from God. But off the air, his character, resolve, and warm, loving heart, that was all Rush Hudson Limbaugh III. With integrity, on loan from nobody.